Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics uh, Podcast. Hello, Professor Dieter. Thanks so much uh, for joining us on the podcast. It's an honor to have you in the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thank looking you. forward to it. Thank you. So I would like to ask you first, how you would like to define yourself for the people maybe first time listening to you? How would you like to define yourself? How would I like to define? First, just brief background here. Yeah, I'm, I'm Dieter Fox. I am um, faculty professor at the... Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Washington in Seattle. And I'm also leading um, the robotics research at NVIDIA. So I have two different positions, both of them very related to robotics. And I would specify my kind, so I'm a roboticist, but I would kind of define myself as a roboticist with very much um, kind of an artificial intelligence perspective, Mm. which means I am not focusing so much on, let's say, the hardware underneath robotics. I'm focusing more on, let's say, the computational aspects, which means I try to abstract away the specific hardware and try to focus on on the general kind of algorithms and ideas um, that allow us to develop robots that exhibit intelligent behavior, which means robots that can perform complex tasks, and also learn from experience, for example. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So before going to all these details, we ask a signature question about the childhood. How was your childhood was as a kid? Being interested in, uh, what, what interest did you have in science or technology? It wasn't clear for you. Childhood is so important. So how it was? Yeah, so that's actually interesting that, um, for example, I cannot say that, oh, from when I was a tiny little kid, I already built robots all over the place. Um, that might be a bit disappointing. Um, I used to, I was always interested in, in, in building stuff like with Lego or back in Germany, we had uh, uh, called Fischer technique, which means you can assemble certain things. I was building, let's say cranes and how they would pick up objects and stuff like that. But it wasn't really the kind of robots that, that nowadays, of course, kids have access to, right? Also with already computers in them and stuff like that. So um, uh, I was interested in, in, in these technical things, but also in, in school, uh, science and math were, were my favorite topics. And my first robot actually that I then really had access to was when I started my PhD. So mm-hmm. extremely late um, because uh, at, at college, so I studied computer science and then I started the PhD where the idea was really focusing on artificial intelligence. And at the time there was also uh, Sebastian Thrun, a very famous roboticist and Wolfram Burgard were both uh, working with me there at the University of Bonn back in Germany. And Sebastian, he convinced our PhD advisor, Professor Armin Kremers to buy a robot. And at the time, this was um, a very big deal because you couldn't just go in a store and buy whatever a robotics kit, right? So we, we had the robot shipped from the US from a small startup company. Um, 
And Sebastian asked me if I was interested in, in also working with the robot kind of as a side project. And it sounded like fun and I yeah. started working with it and I got immediately hooked, uh, I must admit. So this was kind of my little child experience, right? Where I felt like a little kid that gets a new toy because yeah. suddenly you have this, this, this machine that's sitting there and you can control it um, with your computer, right? So it suddenly makes your, your programs come alive. And, and that was really an amazing experience. And yeah, I'm, I'm still with it. Wonderful. So maybe I guess that's the system maybe you built on the first robot. So what kind of question pops up in your mind that when you first encounter the robot? What kind of question to intelligent behavior? Because we have also a question about embodied intelligence. What's really embodied intelligence? Is this a body or the brain or both of them has to be evolved in a certain way, either maybe to open-ended as we have in nature. So what kind of question, when you see this robot in what you do in computer science, what kind of question comes to you as a young leader at this time? So what kind of questions, yeah. Yeah, so with respect to intelligent behavior, it's really this notion of um, how can we, let's say, take this, this, this stream of sensor data, right? That is in itself, of course, very, impoverished as a raw signal because it's it's really difficult to extract high level information from it. Um, and, and how can we extract information that is relevant for the robot and help it make decisions about how to move through the world, um, how to detect things that it wants to avoid, how to um, figure out how to get to a certain goal. And um, I think from my perspective, one of the key questions here is really, um, this notion of um, finding internal representations for the robot that it can use to make these decisions and make um, and exhibit the smart behavior. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'm just going to ask you that case about maybe challenges or limitation because you are really focusing on how we can design these algorithms. So going to the hardware, what you're trying to do, how do you see something still missing we have in the robotics community when it comes to designing uh, the hardware that can uh, receive the capacity of what we want yeah. to do through the body or yeah and the robot in that case so what could yeah, be this is a question what what is on the hardware side i think when it comes to for example navigation or so i think the hardware is pretty good when you look at examples such as from from boston dynamics or so um that they have extremely capable robots right um especially from the hardware perspective and the low level control perspective. Um, I think where the robots are still most impoverished from my perspective is with respect to um, the, the hand design, um, how they can interact with objects and with the world around them. So the kind of grippers we see in robotics are still mm. kind of typical, typically whatever they have like um, two finger grippers and if they have multiple fingers, then they're also very brittle. Um, the design is often so that they are made of rigid parts, hard parts, right? Mm -hmm. And it's so different from, for example, human hands, which are so nicely, extremely articulated. Um, the hands have these soft surfaces, which makes also, of course, interaction with objects uh, much easier because um, having these contacts with these rigid metallic parts um, it uses a lot of slippage and things like that. Um, so there's the question on how we can articulate these systems. 
And another key component from my perspective is really also on the sensing side, which means right now, most of the sensing we're using um, in these systems is either, of course, we use um, visual sensing, camera sensing to detect objects and things like that. But once we get close to the object, it's mostly about some, some very simple either um, kind of force feedback we get through the grippers, but um, the sensing that we use like on the contacts themselves is still pretty mm. impoverished. So um, there's some really exciting work going on on developing finger touch sensors and things like that. But I think we're still not there where we have the rich kind of sensor that we have all along the skin of our hands, for example. Right? And I think that would be something that could really push forward um, mm -hmm. the robustness of how we interact with objects. That's a very interesting point. I would like to stop here. So the part of sensing will even stop robotics. We have this issue that we, we don't know how to maybe still how the configuration of the sensor and what kind of material. So for you, when you try to doing it in the algorithmic side and you still need this data, what do you think maybe questions we have to ask so that we can solve this issue? Or which direction we have to go for to get what you try to design the sensing in a robustness way? That's first part. Now, what kind of question or new direction we have to go for? So if we have, so you mean once we have these sensors, then also like how can we really take advantage of those and? Yeah, and maybe because it's this missing pieces here about the sensing, we still, yeah, we're still not there yet in accuracy or robustness or reproducible yeah. uh, sensing uh, results. Uh, how we can, how, what direction we have to go for so that we can achieve what you try to aspire? Yeah. Yeah. I think on the one hand side, of course, there's a lot of uh, work to be done. On, on just the engineering, mechanical engineering side of how to develop these hands, how to develop these sensors so that they also, I think, for example, cabling of how to get the data from the sensors to the computers, for example, is, is one of the big problems with these uh, sensors in, in the articulated hands. Um, on the compute side, of course, we then have to figure out how we can take advantage of all that sensor data, mm -hmm. right? It's not that suddenly the sensor data itself is gonna solve these problems. And that is where, I think techniques similar to also to what's been successful in computer vision and machine learning are going to be um, very, very useful. Where the idea is that um, the robot needs to learn from experience, from interacting with objects in the real world, kind of what it feels like to touch them and then um, learn representations from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. So maybe I'm going to ask you about well, maybe what's something you're doing a research group. Uh, still, maybe something uh, very interesting to, if you can share with us what kind of research questions you have or the challenges. Yeah, so um, research challenges and questions. So again, I think the one of the really big challenges is um, kind of high level symbolic reasoning about the world and um, evolving these kind of representations from raw sensor data. So for example, um, we're pretty good at, let's say low level control and um, teaching robots to perform low level control tasks. So for example, if you look at all the examples from Boston Dynamics, it's, it's pretty amazing what these robots can do. Um, we are also pretty good at um, using, or if we have enough, supervised training data, teaching robots, for example, about recognizing objects or reasoning about the environment in a semantic way. 
Um, the same for tasks, like if you have a multi-step task, like how do you pick up an object, move it somewhere else, things like that. But somehow these low level and the high level are kind of disconnected, meaning mm. that um, we often design them kind of independently of each other. And I think um, coming up with mechanisms that can just evolve these representations from the raw sensor data, uh, that is one of the big open questions. And I hope that these new techniques such as deep learning, uh, these deep neural networks can at least point us in the right direction for doing that because they are very well suited for dealing with highly complex data. Mm -hmm. So maybe a quick question about the expensive uh, computation, for example, that's something we struggle sometimes in soft robotics or robotics, expensive computation. Sometimes we avoid modeling and we have the question how we can close the gap between simulation to reality, what technique we can do that we can avoid this data and, uh, and get this result. And so, from your vision, what's something you think maybe we have to do so that we can close this gap? And, yeah, that's a good yeah. question. So I think there's, on the one hand side, um, I think in robotics, we tend to say that our robots need to be able to learn tasks and things like that just from whatever, five demonstrations or something like that, right? But um, uh, in other communities, if you look at computer vision, language processing, um, they have shown that um, uh, an alternative approach, which is just if you have a lot of data, then even with rather weak supervision, you can learn actually extremely capable representations, right? And I think in robotics, uh, one promising direction would be to look at, for example, tools like simulation, where we can now um, design simulation environments in which we can train these robots and provide them with a lot of training data that uh, would be super expensive to do in the real world, right? So I think simulation can play a, a very, very important role here because on the one hand side, it democratizes the research because you don't need a super expensive robot mm -hmm. um, in order to, to develop your algorithms. Um, at the same time, uh, it enables us to train robots in a safe way and also to, for example, do benchmarking against other techniques. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think also related here, uh, I think some people speak about how we can design this robot to be adaptable in, in a structured environment when it comes to simulation before leashing this robots to, yeah, unknown environment. So what yeah, kind of design, good, yeah. That's a, that's a good question. So I guess you're hinting at that this kind of overfitting to the environment, right? The problem is if we train robots only in, let's say these simulations, there's on the one hand side, there's a risk that um, there's still this, what the people call the sim to real transfer, which means this gap between what data looks like in the simulator versus what it will look like in the real world. And our robot might perform really well in the simulator, but it fails miserably when you try the same things in the real world. Um, with respect to that, I think techniques are um, that we are looking at specifically is, for example, um, adding the right kind of randomization into the simulation so that it is representative of what you will see in the real world. Um, the, there's been a lot of research on, on that topic. Um, but what we are trying to do is also not just randomize, um, let's say, crazy amounts of, of noise 
but we would like to randomize such that it is geared towards the real world, which means we're trying to collect real world data and use that data to refine how we randomize our simulator so that the simulators behave more and more like the real world. Let's say if we would only rely on simulation is this notion that our robots will always only experience things that they will see in the simulator, which means which we as simulation designers came up with, right? And of course, um, um, as you're hinting at, there's also a risk that the real world is it's so open-ended that we, there's many things that we cannot foresee, right? So how will our robots be able to deal with them? And um, I think uh, really interesting directions for research there are things that, that are called curiosity-driven learning for robotics or um, endowing robots with the notion of what's called intuitive physics, mm -hmm. where the idea is, for example, with curiosity, um, how can we enable robots to go out in an unknown environment and then try to learn about this environment, new concepts and interact with the environment and establish new concepts, even in a, in a way that is not guided by a specific task. Um, and if we develop these kind of algorithms, then our robots can also be curious in the real world and that will hopefully help them to be much more robust and face um, unknown situations. That's really interesting, Bart. I would like to ask you a question because I think that's something maybe related. So when you have this design for the brain and the design of the body in that case, and assuming we go into open-ended scenario for that case, which one do you think we have we have to invest more in the brain or in the body to adapt to the brain? Or how do you see the adaptation if we can redundancy, assuming that we have to go for redundancy situation, which one you have to wait for more? The morphology is the shape of the robot or the brain in that case? That's such a good question. Yeah, the, the kind of, where should we put more effort, the brain or the body? Um, as an AI researchers, I personally, choose to work more, let's say, on, on the brain side, on the compute side. Um, and the reason is also, if you look at examples where people, for example, have remote controlled a robot, right, with the current hardware. So for example, at the NVIDIA lab, we did a project that's called DexPilot, where we took um, a robot hand, it's an Allegro hand, which is a robot hand with four fingers, mm -hmm. And we had a person in a motion capture system that we built to remotely control that robot. And um, through that remote control, actually, we were able to do pretty sophisticated um, actions with this, with this uh, manipulator. So for example, I was even able to, there was a wallet on the table and they were able to open the wallet and pull out a $10 bill, right? Or open like sophisticated small, cabinets and things like that. So that tells me that the hardware is at least far more capable than what we um, with our um, um, autonomous algorithms are getting out of them right now. Um, so I, I think there is a, a huge amount of work still to be done on the, let's say, the pure intelligence of these systems. Again, at the same time, of course, we need to develop um, also the hardware further to improve our robots. Um, mm. But, but for me, the exciting, one of the exciting direction is really on the brain side. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. 
So maybe also because I think maybe you'll ask about uh, the Moore's law, for example, that case and the, the control we have or the yeah, architecture we have. From your perspective, do you, because we now see that Moore's law is not really valid anymore. So how do you see the vision of the computation power if we want to simulate something like our brain? So yeah. how do you envision the architecture looks like in that case? I think, um... As we see right now, for example, with uh, a lot of the work going on in the deep learning community, right, that uh, with these neural networks, um, which are not like really good simulations of the brain or so, right, but with this highly, highly parallelized computation, we can actually build systems that can perform extremely uh, complex computations, like on the perception, learning, and decision making side. That operate also in real time, right? And of course, uh, that was one of the motivations why I also was joined NVIDIA because with their GPUs, they're kind of the, the, the prime compute environments for enabling this kind of processing. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. So maybe we can ask uh, a few questions from the audience because they have lots of questions, but we'll go for yeah. a few. Um, the first question is, what is the future of SLAM? And is it solved or can we still improve uh, compared to currently existing solution? Huh. Um, yes, yeah, SLAM, maybe, as, maybe, maybe first I should, as context, SLAM stands for, for, the, for simultaneous localization and mapping. And the idea of SLAM is how can a robot, for example, let's say a robot has a laser scan, scanner or a camera on board and it moves around and as it's moving around, it's trying to build a, a, a model of the environment. And some of the key problems in SLAM are um, that it's becoming less and less certain about its position. And it needs to bring all this data into a consistent representation, spatially consistent representation. Now, the question is, is SLAM solved? Um, it's a very loaded question. And there's many people who mm. argue about that. I think. Um, from my perspective, SLAM is actually just a small part of the real question, which is about representations of environments. So with SLAM, people often connect this focus on just getting the locations of everything right, estimating exactly where landmarks are or where certain objects are. And I think um, what's going to be much more important is a more semantic representation of the environment. So for example, we humans, right? We clearly don't have a very accurate 3D model of our house in our, our mind, right? When we're navigating around. Or if you go into an office building and someone tells you, okay, the office is on the third floor um, and, and you go down the hallway on the right, something like that. Uh, we don't need a, a, a very accurate 3D model of this environment. Right. So our understanding of this environment is much more at a semantic understanding of objects of certain pathways that we follow. And I think that is something that um, we need to endow our robots with as well. So, again, I think SLAM itself isn't solved yet. There's still many open questions in the SLAM work itself. But if you broaden the scope of SLAM, then it's just a wide open research area. Great. Thank you for sharing that. And the next question is, how much of role uh, do you see ML and machine learning methods playing in SLAM in the future? If you have any com other comments you would like to say about the question, yeah. 
oh, the, the role of machine learning in SLAM. Well, on the one hand side, uh, if we're talking about these extensions to, let's say, more semantic understandings of the world, then clearly machine learning can help a lot with extracting these semantic information from the sensor data, like computer vision techniques, right, that can then enable the robot to reason about objects in the world. Um, interestingly, um, initially people thought that because SLAM itself is such a geometric process, geometric reasoning process, also related to structure from motion and other techniques, that, um, that uh, deep learning can't really help with that, for instance. But we've seen a lot of progress um, by incorporating deep learning processes into these SLAM techniques. So I think even um, on the basic SLAM technology, there's still a lot of work that can be done by combining it and incorporating deep learning techniques into that. And then I think they will become even more robust than they are right now. And, and we've seen some really exciting examples for that, I think, over the last years. Right. And other question asking about what is missing problem in robotics that you are tackling? I think we can maybe cover something about that, but if you have other comments. And one that isn't completely solved or doesn't have high quality real world implementation. Oh, a problem right now that's, well, I think, so on the one hand side, we do a lot of work, for example, in, let's say, object manipulation, right? Um, a lot of that is focused, of course, on um, rigid objects. Um, and um, you can see a lot of work that's also focusing on things like deformable objects, such as cloth or ropes. But what I find really fascinating is all this, what you might call stuff out there that is not rigid objects, but that is something that is just really hard to model. So for example, think about the kitchen environment, right? Like how do you represent salad, vegetables? How do you represent operations such as chopping an onion? Like what's the representation of this onion? Is it this one round thing? Or is it then these little dices and cubes that you're, that you're generating by slicing it? Um, uh, imagine you're, you're, uh, you want to have a robot mix dough, bake a cake. So how does it reason about flour and water and how these things mix together? And interestingly, I think we humans have a pretty good intuitive understanding of these things, right? Because otherwise we couldn't kind of operate so well on them. Mm -hmm. For example, like slicing an onion, right? Um, but at the same time, this understanding that we have is not just perfect physical understanding, right? It's just what, what, what I said, this intuitive notion that we get from experience over time. And I don't think we have a good way for endowing our robots for that. There's research going on in that direction, but I think it still has a long way to go. So, which means representations of things that we can't just model that easily. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting point. Maybe a quick question here about, you mentioned two things I think very important about, maybe, yeah, the first thing like closing the, or dieting onion or soft object, the modeling part, which one do you have to weigh so that you can represent this situation? Do you think the modeling, maybe lack of modeling and intuition, the part of intuition is interesting, how you can represent the intuition or, or gut feeling, all this kind of complexity in what we have how how we can abstract them? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. If I only knew how we can how we can go about it, I 
I personally, and there's of course, that's I'm sure it's controversial. I personally believe that these new techniques um, coming, let's say, from the deep learning uh, community are going to be um, very powerful in that area. Where the idea is, um, rather than me as the engineer of these algorithms, for example, I'm imposing a very clear structure onto how the robot should think about the world, which is what we're doing right now often, right? We say there's, a, there's an object and the object has a 3D model and it needs to reason about that 3D model of the object. I think we need to look at ways of just learning, letting these representations evolve from the data. And um, in deep learning, now there are several techniques that can be used where you just collect data in the environment and you learn representations, for example, that um, are able, for instance, to predict, let's say the future, which means I'm looking at the data that I have up to time T and then I train a system that can predict what's gonna happen conditioned on my actions in the time T plus one, T plus two and in the future. And the nice thing is that we can learn these what's called predictive representations. We can learn them in a self-supervised way, which means the robot can use its own experience to learn such representations. And the hope is that by learning such representations, it can also use them then to learn control tasks and to understand the environment better than um, if we as designers would just uh, decide on what the representation should look like. That's also a good point. These days machine uh, algorithms are used in the most of research robotic algorithm. Is the use, use, uh, use of machine learning becoming excessive? Is machine learning is really providing enough benefits with respect to its usage of level or it's handling the research progress? Yeah, that's a good question. So whether we're overdoing it with the machine learning, right? And um, I think it's, yeah, it's interesting. So compared to other communities like the computer vision community, it turns out that the robotics community has actually been pretty hesitant of adopting machine learning and deep learning as one of their key tools. But when you now go to the conferences, I think the number one keywords are all related to mm. learning, deep learning. And um, I think, first of all, I, I don't see machine learning as something, it's an either or, right? You do machine learning or you don't do machine learning. I think machine learning is uh, one thing that we should have in our toolbox and we should apply it to the problems we're trying to solve. Um, I believe we are still just scratching at the surface of what you can do with machine learning, right? Some people, um, um, I think, commit the mistake that they say, oh, right now machine learning has all these limitations and therefore it will never be able to solve really hard problems. But of course, machine learning itself, the tools themselves keep on developing and evolving and get better and better. So I believe that we're gonna see even more capable machine learning tools. And I think they're gonna be just uh, extremely important because we just can't manually design the whole world around the robot and the reasoning processes for the robot. I think they have to be just learned in a data-driven way and the robot needs to be able to just constantly learn as it's operating in the environment. Mm -hmm. So the other question also here, uh, 
when is uh, Nevada, Isaac, is, uh, I hope I say it right, going to be full of legit released? Will it support Ross and Evento? Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So fully fledged, what does fully fledged mean, of course, right? <laughs> um, so, so first of all, Isaac SDK is um, an, an SDK that's designed for robotics, specifically with an eye towards taking full advantage of, let's say, GPU um, processing and GPU parallel computation. So uh, it has specifically um, towards um, enabling deep learning, incorporating simulation into the learning processes, and also enabling high-speed communication. Um, and Isaac Sim is a tool for kind of developing simulation tools specifically for robotics, such that um, they have a high uh, physical real realism, which means they really model well the physical context between the robots and the environment, how objects behave in the physical world, um, and also um, uh, how can we develop environments in which we can train our robots. Right, and how can we make them look photorealistic? So we can now develop uh, simulated environments that look virtually like the real world, right? Um, so this is kind of the tools that Isaac SDK and Sim are, um, are developing. And I don't think at any point that we say we're we're done with that, right? It's really about continuously evolving them and making them accessible to the robotics, both research and industrial community so that they can use them. So there was one question about um, ROS uh, interfaces and Ubuntu. It turns out that both SIM and SDK, they do support ROS and Ubuntu already. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the simulation, um, I think currently the release has um, a ROS interface and they're currently developing one for ROS2. And the SDK has a specific ROS bridge so that you can connect your ROS tools to the SDK. So the idea is actually to make this interoperable as much as possible. One additional point I also want to mention that yeah. many of the tools that are being built um, are also accessible within the ROS community. So many of the of, of the, the tools that are highly specialized, again, for, for high-speed GPU perception and things like that, they're also made accessible as part of the ROS community. Great. So the next question was so much assumed to real training. How can you account for things like serendipity when models are built in synthetic world? Although we are designing environment as we see them, is it possible that we are missing out sensation that other intelligence can end up define the world? Yeah, I think that's 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 a good question. Um, it's it's very much related to what I what we discussed earlier on, right? Where the idea is that if we only train our robot in these environments that we as engineers, let's say, develop for them, then we're not going to be able to model all surprises that the real world would have uh, for our robots, right? And that is why I think it's important that we, we look also at what you might call these meta algorithms like curiosity or so, right? Where curiosity is not just a specific behavior, 
but it's kind of an approach of how you operate in the world and how you view certain tasks that you are solving, right? And I, I hope that, that these notions, if we can, can develop them, that they will then make it possible for robots to um, uh, succeed, even if the real world holds many surprises open for them. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's also related to this notion of lifelong learning, right? So for example, if we ever wanna have a robot in our home or in the kitchen helping us with certain tasks, um, I would never expect to be able to buy a robot and from day one on, it's going to be perfect in my home, right? But what I would like to have is a robot that comes in with, the, with basic capabilities, like it should be able to recognize whatever coffee mugs and things like that. But it should also have the learning capabilities such that it can become an expert in my house. So I, I don't need my robot to be an expert in your house. I want it to be really good in mine, right? So they need to be able to keep on learning and these techniques, maybe those we can develop in simulation um, because we don't know exactly yet how to do that even. Mm -hmm. right. So uh, next question. I have dreamed from, from uh, the audience, I have dreamed of building robots since I was a child. As a software developer with 15 years of experience, how likely is it uh, that I can find a company willing to take a chance and someone wanting to join the company in any capacity just to get a chance to learn and one day build robot myself perhaps a transition from enterprise software to robotics so yeah. like shift, yeah that's a that's a good question i mean many companies are with with robotics becoming more and more relevant for real industrial applications right and i count for example also uh, self-driving cars into this robotics class of, of um, applications. Um, so with more and more of these um, domains becoming uh, uh, really viable businesses, more and more companies are hiring in that area, right? And of course, there's a huge need for software engineers and software developers. So on the one hand side, um, if you're in a larger company, often there might be moves you could do to a group where you're attaching yourself to an existing ro um, robotics team, for example, and offer your expertise. Um, in general, I think many of these companies are, of course, looking at for people that have some experience already in robotics. Um, for that, I would, I would recommend also um, take some of these online courses. There are many courses online available nowadays that people can take um, for understanding, for example, machine learning, robotics. Um, get one of these robot kits uh, that are actually nowadays also not that expensive anymore and uh, play around with them because I think for robotics there's nothing more important than actually doing it on the robot. I think it's really hard to learn um, all the complexities of robotics in simulation. So even these, these cheap kits can already teach you a lot about robotics. So the next question is, uh, is uh, what is your outlook and cobots or collaborative robots? Do you have any internship that accept international EE student? And what's your view in robots and elderly or sick care? Oh, interesting. Yeah, so with respect to internships here, yeah, both at the University of Washington in my, in my research lab there and in the video research we 
um, frequently have international interns and also visitors from other universities that spend, for example, three, three months to a half a year with us and do, do research in the lab with us. So um, that's one opportunity to apply to these. Um, in, in some places, of course, um, we do expect that there's some prior experience and connection already to the research projects because otherwise there might be uh, too long of a ramp up time. And then there was a question, what I think about robotics for, was it elderly? And I must say, I actually think this is the, the by far most exciting use cases for robotics. And I think some of the most viable use cases. So I don't think that, for example, um, the general household robot that's gonna clean your kitchen and, and, and cook your meal is gonna be the first viable robot in the home beyond, let's say, uh, vacuuming. Um, I think the, the real first relevant use cases will be in the healthcare sector, will be in the elder care sector and um, helping people with disabilities. So I think that is um, an extremely positive use case because it has a really good impact on society, can help us with the problem we have right now. So there are just not enough people to help people um, to take care of elderly people in their home. So right now they often have to go, for example, to a nursing home. But if we had robots that can help them even with some mundane tasks like bringing them the food and things like that, that could already be a big plus. So I'm, I'm extremely positive ab about these use cases. And I think those are the most exciting ones that we should work towards. Right. So um, there's also another question um, the audience asked us here about, I'm a recent undergraduate in engineering field. What should I do to get involved in industrial robotics research? Where do you see the future in robotics innovation heading? I think that's also, yeah, a good question. Yeah, I think similar to, to, to the previous uh, point, right? I would suggest um, take courses in these areas, right? And there are of course core, let's say robotics courses, uh, again, I believe computer vision courses, deep learning courses are going to be very relevant. Um, and, and, and they are exceptionally uh, high quality. And nowadays, actually, even what I do online on YouTube, many lectures are online, right? Even I, I still often take a look at them if I want to learn something about a specific technique or so, right? Just keep on learning. Um, and when it comes to which area of robotics, I think all these areas are super exciting. So there's still huge amount of work to be done on the hardware side, as we said, um, but also of course, um, again, the, the, the brain, the computing side, perception control side, learning of these robots is gonna be very, very important moving forward. And, and one topic explicitly that, um, that I have mentioned is also, I think human robot interaction is gonna be a really, really important area. Like how can we get these robots to interact with people in a natural way? How can we get them to understand humans around them? Um, and, and what are the interfaces even, right? Do you have whatever, a touch screen? Do you need to program these robots? Or um, there's also hopefully work towards, can you just talk to them? Can you just tell them what to do? That would be ideal. It's not easy. 
But I think there are so many really interesting research questions that we still need to address. Mm -hmm. Maybe a quick question here. For your experience, do you have something in your yeah, explanation when you try to model something or explain something? When it deployed on the robots was surprising or counterintuitive or having emergent behavior, do you have any something like that happened wasn't expected or surprising result or counterintuitive to what you already thought about? Yeah, there was. Um, yeah, surprise. One of the there was actually uh, pretty early on when we so when we one example was we we developed a, a, a robot, a museum tour guide robot, right? Mm -hmm. Where we had a robot navigation system and we wanted to highlight that we can get this robot to navigate through populated environments. So, um, and uh, we deployed one robot in the uh, Technical Museum in Bonn and one in Washington DC. And uh, one of my tasks was actually what's called collision avoidance, which means, um, uh, your robot gets a, a goal position sent to it by a planner, let's say, which means something like, okay, get to a location three meters ahead. And the robot is using its sensor data, like a laser scanner or ultrasound sensors, in order to detect where obstacles are around it and it tries to move around them. So, and I spent quite some time on, on tuning that system and we tested it a lot in, in the university, in the, in the research lab. And it was pretty good at detecting obstacles and then smoothly moving around them and getting to the goal locations. Um, and when we tested it also, we would stand in front of the robot and it would nicely move around us. But then when we deployed it in, in the museum, it was so crowded sometimes that people, and they just wanted to see how the robot reacts. People would stand in front of the robot and um, would look at it and the robot would constantly try to move around them. So which means it would rotate away and try to get there. And then the, there was another person standing there and it was totally confusing to the people because they didn't know what the robot wanted to do because it was constantly rotating and turning around and things like that. And in the end, the solution to this problem was when there was a person in front of the robot, the robot should just stop and then we had a loudspeaker system on the robot and it would just say, could you please stay behind me or I need to get through. Um, so this was an example where um, if you design something in your research lab, um, you often just don't see where the real problems are. And that's why I would encourage people to always try their stuff in the real world because that's where you learn what the real problems are, right? And in that case, we just didn't anticipate how let's say people would behave around the robot right and and then yeah. how we would deal with this absolutely i agree with that yeah so uh we have a question from uh, um 15 years old and he have a lot of question for you um so first he asks you uh what are your thoughts in using human imitation learning ai to full movement and behavior of future robots and he said that i live in the uk and i'm 15 years old and very interested in robotics. And he asks us what courses do you recommend? I think you covered that. I can take at university, start my own robotics company. So, and I'm all, I'm not very skilled in programming. However, I think advanced AI is what modern robotics uh, lack in order for them to truly, uh, to be truly practical. 
He asks you if it worth uh, me taking a course on AI at university to build better robots, or should I focus more in mechanical or electronic engineering? And what do you think is uh, uh, the next biggest step needed for robots in order to, in order for us uh, to see robotics um, yeah, revolution? What do you think, uh, I'm sorry, it's a long question. So what do you think about universal platform and for robotics and electronic communication so robots can work together and which yeah. robotics? Yeah, it's a, long, it's a long question. Let me be yeah, yeah. And it's related, I guess, to, to some yeah, of the sorry. Again, I think AI, of course, or, or a, let's say AI related techniques are, are, are very important for, for um, uh, designing robots or developing robots, right? That can just learn to deal with the complexity of the real world. We cannot just manually program these robots to do that. Um, so having good background in AI is, is certainly a plus, but at the same time, it also depends on what your preferences are, right? There are many open, exciting questions with respect to mechanical designs. As I mentioned, for example, on, on, on manipulators' hands yeah. for robots is just a really open, open space. So, um, and then it's not either or, right? It's this, this co-development co of these techniques. So for example, mm -hmm. if you have these good hands, you suddenly need, need new algorithms for controlling them and for taking advantage of, of the new capabilities yeah. of these hands. So even if uh, as, a, as, a, as an AI researcher, you should know something about the mechanical side and as a mechanical engineer, knowing something about the artificial intelligence algorithms and machine learning algorithms can be extremely beneficial. So mm -hmm. I don't see this really as, as an either or question here. Yeah, great. So it goes into a few questions. The first one, what's something for you still hard to understand when it comes to your work, something still hard for you to understand? Well, for me, um, again, the big, the, 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 the really, really big question is how we can um, get to, to higher level reasoning and understanding about tasks mm -hmm. and environments from um, experiences in the real world and raw sensor data. Like how can we come up with these mechanisms that take this continuous stream of high dimensional data mm -hmm. and somehow compress it into something that doesn't have to be explicit symbols, but it resembles, let's say, what mm -hmm. we often call, call these symbols. And that is also related then to, for example, language, yeah. right? Where linguistics are looking at how, how language evolves, how symbols evolve compositionality of language. I think all of these things are, are connected to each other. And um, I believe we still have a long way to go until we really crack yeah. that nut. And uh, we have a question about intellectual inclusiveness in academia. So how do you see the intellectual uh, inclusivity when it comes to different approaches, different ideas? We have few funding and there's a competition and also publication pressure at the same time. And some people yeah, complain about this kind of pressure. You wanted to answer those big questions and at the same time you have the pressure to do incremental work sometimes as you're going to risk ideas, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good, good question. And um, yeah, there might be a tendency sometimes in communities to become um, too much focus on a certain area, right? Because everybody gets excited about a new technique or something like that, as for example, like deep learning right now, 
and, and, and other techniques um, get uh, too little exposure or sometimes even uh, reviewers might just say, oh, no, 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 that stuff could never work. I'm not going to accept these kind of papers. So I think all we, we can do is as, also as advisors, make sure that our students stay open-minded, right? I think it's important that, that we try out different techniques um, different approaches, different mindset for, um, for solving problems. And that's going to be crucial. So we need to make sure that um, that is um, really ingrained in the reviewing process, be it for funding, be it for at conferences as well, because of course, getting your papers published is, is important. And um, for individuals, if you're, if you're convinced about, about your technique, um, I encourage you to um, stick with it and, and see how you can make it work and convince others. I think the best way to convince others that your work is really good is by solving problems that these other people care about but don't know how to solve, right? Mm -hmm. Like um, showing that you're competitive. That was one of the main problems, for example, of, as we know, deep learning in the computer vision community where the vision community was extremely hesitant to accept deep learning as an interesting or viable technique um, until the deep learning technique suddenly um, got the best results on some of the key benchmarks. And then suddenly this was an eye opener. And now of course it's, um, it's pervasive in that community, right? So I would say um, um, perseverance is important, right? Try to keep on pushing if you're convinced. At the same time, you yourself also stay open-minded, right? Don't just dismiss other people's work or other, other people's thinking. And um, I always think, always kind of question your own approach, right? Like think about, so is that really the right way of doing this? And when you see another paper that comes up with a different technique, think about it. So what are the advantages of that technique? And could I either incorporate that into my approach or should I even, in the extreme case, should I just adopt that and keep on moving with this direct, direction, right? So yeah. uh, flexibility is important. That's a very good point, yeah. And do you think ego is important for you? Ego. Could you repeat that? Do you think ego is important for you when it comes to expressing your ideas? Oh, ego. Yeah. I think, I don't know. I, I don't think ego is any more important mm. research than in, than in other domains, which means I don't think it's actually, it's actually really important, right? I think for a successful research career, um, it's much more important what I just mentioned, these qualities of being open-minded, being curious, right? Interested in, in, in new things. Um, also, I think what's actually important on research is being collaborative right, willingness and also actually the desire to work with others because often problems are way too big for you to individually solve. I think those are um, properties that are much more important than having, having a big ego, right? Uh, we know many people that have a huge ego and they're not doing great stuff. And we know people that have maybe a small ego and they're making the greatest contributions. So, um, yeah. The answer is I, I I don't think it's particular. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And what could be the most important quality you have gained when you work in academia? What could be one important quality you have to maintain? 
yeah, the, the things that I just mentioned, right? Like really kind of being, yeah. being willing to learn new things and being open-minded. Yeah. Okay, and then is there any book inspired you would like to share? Any book inspired you? Oh, a book that inspired. Yeah, I must, um, yeah, there is uh, actually the book that I think had the biggest impact mm -hmm. if you think about it on, or if I think about it also on, on, on my career and my life was actually, uh, uh, maybe you heard of this, Gödel Escher Buck by Douglas Hofstetter. Mm, I don't know this book, no. Ah, see, see, there you are. You should read. So this is um, a book that was written actually. So Dr. Hofstetter, he's a cognitive scientist and also a physicist. And he wrote this book, Gödel Escher Buck in, in Bach in German. But yeah. I think in the US people would call it Bach often. Um, about the composer and Escher, who is an artist who made these amazing drawings, and Gödel, uh, one of the most famous mathematicians. Um, and I stumbled upon that book when I was in high school, and it was written in 79. And it's actually about a lot about artificial intelligence, cognition. Um, it explains concepts such as, as recursion, logic, many of these things that are related to artificial intelligence and computer science. And it does it in a, in a, in a really fascinating way by coming up with these little stories around it and, and puzzles. And it's just, I was super excited reading this. Um, I just did it by myself. Um, I, and I actually didn't have the, the connection to other people where I could talk to them about it. But then at some point I asked someone, so when I, came towards like deciding what I should study. I asked someone, so if I like that kind of stuff, uh, what should I do? And that person said, oh, you should do computer science because that's exactly about this kind of thinking, um, this algorithmic approach to problems. And um, yeah, that's how I got into computer science and then AI and ultimately robotics. That's interesting. So I would, I honestly, highly recommend people reading that book. It's really fascinating. I think even now, 79, so that's like uh, 32 years old. Yeah, it's like uh, 40, yeah, no, 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 23, 23 years. 23, yeah, or 24, yeah. 42, no, 42. Uh, 42, okay. 42, okay, yeah. Oh, no, wait. We are <laughs> in... 20. No, no, 24, 24. Fifth? It's actually, uh, uh, yeah, 42. Okay. okay, years old, and it's still super relevant. People That's should interesting. It. It's a fun read. Yeah, but thank you for sharing that. Thank you, thank you so much for sharing, yeah. And lastly, I don't know, maybe the best advice was given to you, but it seemed this book was really a big impact to you, but if there's any advice we're giving to you and will life be changing, and you would like to share with a student and audience, I don't know. Advice was given to choose life changing. Yeah, yeah. I think I. I think what advice the way I say. I think what what I learned is that people should um, maybe not let's say overthink their career or overthink their future. Mm -hmm. So um, I realized that often you should do things that you enjoy and that you are really excited about. And even maybe sometimes if in the moment it looks like, oh, that might not be the most supportive for your career, but you should still do what you think is good, right? And 
um, always be open to opportunities when something comes up and mm. um, you think that's a, that's a good thing to try, um, just go for it, right? And, and then good things will happen. I really like that. I think that's something, yeah, very, very powerful. But I think most people are afraid from risk. It's come down to risk. If you over, don't overthink and yeah, you want exactly. to foresee. And you can't, and you can't predict exactly what's going to happen, right? And, yeah. and you often can't predict what you're going to like five years in the future or so, or what you want to do, right? There's so many uncertainties. And again, if you're over planning, as you said, you're going to become also risk averse because you did all this yeah. planning and now you got to stick to it. And maybe that's not the best thing you can do. I really like that. This is really, yeah, thoughtful advice. So I don't know if you have any final words you'd like to say uh, for the audience, any final words you'd like to say, if you have any. I think I, I talked quite a bit. Overall, yeah, I think, again, I think robotics is just um, extremely exciting area, right? And um, yeah. it, it will have huge impact. And I think it has the potential to have hugely positive impact on our society. We are currently at a time with these new tools that we have mm. hardware, but also on the compute side, simulations, learning, and a better understanding of all these algorithms that I think it's a super exciting time to be in robotics. And I encourage people to, to keep on working on, on that and hopefully uh, we'll, we'll really make this next generation of robots um, so, enable it. Thanks so much, Professor Jisha. I think that was really inspiring and such an honor again to have you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for inviting me. Uh, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you.